0: On that, I'm sure. Glad that you could be here today. Glad to have you. Glad to be here with you. Glad that you're here in person and/or by the camera. Thanks to the ever faithful and always present, Mr. Tom May. We appreciate you. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse. Anybody know that song? It's a beautiful hymn. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Hmm. We're going to be in Ephesians 2 today, looking at two of my favorite words in Scripture, but God. Ephesians 2 will be there pretty soon, looking at but God. God. Many of you know, uh, that know me, know that I love New York City. I've loved New York City for a long time. There's many reasons you can chase back to my childhood. Why? Movies and TV shows and, and things like that. Uh, I got to go there when I was young. My dad's best friend from the military is from Long Island, and I went there whenever I was 12, and, and was and is, and has all, I've always been enamored with that city ever since. Just the, the sheer uh, enormity of it, uh, I enjoy. Um, there's a story about former mayor of New York City, uh, Foriello LaGuardia, which is the same one that the news, uh, the airport is named after. He was a former mayor. He was during the, the last years of the Great Depression, the hardest years of the Great Depression all the way through World War II, very beloved uh, mayor of New York City. His nickname uh, was The Little Flower because he was five foot four and because he always wore a flower on his lapel, a carnation on his lapel pin. A lot of stories about him, a lot of legends about him. Uh, I was not 100% sure whether this story is, is a story or legend, but either way, um, the, I know that there are, is some truth in it because he did definitely um, act as judge sometimes in the courtroom uh, as the mayor. But anyway, this was in 1935 when the Depression was really, really bad, and uh, he took it upon himself to don the judge's robe and take over for the judge one evening uh, in one of the courts there in New York City, and with, within a few minutes, a, uh, an older lady came in, and she was charged with shoplifting uh, because she had stolen a loaf of bread, uh, and the bread cost ten dollars. And these, uh, of course, she was begging for mercy. She said, "We don't have any money. We don't have any food. I'm trying to feed my grandkids. This is the height of the depression." Um, and the shop owner was there, and he was railing against her. You know, you have to, you have to charge her. If she gets away with it, then, then everybody thinks they can get away with it. Excuse me. LaGuardia was, was pretty moved by this, uh, and he did unfortunately agree with the shop owner uh, and said that it is not okay to shoplift, so he, he found her guilty and charged her the $10 fine, and as he was charging her with that, he stood up himself pulling out his wallet and paid the $10 fine for her. Uh, not only that, he said that it was uh, disgusting that in a city like New York that a woman would have to steal bread to be able to feed her grandchildren, uh, so he ordered everyone in the court, uh, officers, court officials, and those that were there to go through their court proceedings to all pay a 50 cent fine uh, for that taking place, and she ended up walking out of there with $47.50. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a feel good story, it's a cute story, um, but it's a simple story talking a little bit about grace. Grace that we can give to each other, but God's grace. We're looking at Paul's letter today. We'll be in Ephesians. Paul's letter to Ephesus, uh, the crown jewel of Paul's letters, as many scholars refer to it. Uh, The word for unconditional love, God's love, agape, is used more in this letter than in any of Paul's other letters. About 15% of the word's usage by Paul is in this letter. He also mentions grace 12 times in this letter. It's a unifying letter. It's a widely circulated, meant for circulation in the early church letter. It's written by Paul while he was in prison, most likely his Roman imprisonment 60 and 61 AD. And we're jumping in today right into chapter 2 where Paul is describing every single person that has ever become a believer and follower of Jesus or has placed their faith in Jesus. Same thing. To be a believer and follower of Jesus means you have placed your faith in him. So that's where we are. Chapter 1, verse 1. If you're there, say yee-haw. yeehaw. Sweet. Yeah. All right. chapter, one, or chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. There it is. Dead. You were dead. Why? Trespasses and sins. Double emphasis on the reason why. Trespasses and sins. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages or the duly deserved payment of sin is death. You were dead. Spiritually dead. I was dead spiritually dead. Every single person before they become a follower of Jesus is dead, separated from God and the things of God dead. Did you know that there's no degrees of dead? Have you ever thought about that? There's no degrees of dead. You're either dead or alive. It reminds me of a story that my dad has told me I cannot remember how many times, and I laugh every time he tells a story. It's a story of his dad, uh, who is 91 years old. Both of my granddads are 91 years old. They are, they are what we would call old school, uh, and, I, and I love them dearly for that. Uh, and my dad's dad had—my uh, my, my father has a, a half-sister. Um, my, my, my granddad remarried, and they, have, they had one child together. And uh, they were having—this is a long time ago when she was young— uh, early early marriage, got married young, that type of thing. And the husband at the time was there at their house, and he said something that I can't repeat in church, but suffice it to say that he, he referred to my granddad's daughter, which would be my aunt, um, not very nicely. A way that you would never, should never refer to any woman, but especially not be stupid enough to say it in front of the woman's father. And uh, my uh, granddad, you know, he can tell a pretty good story. He said, you know, I sprung up out of that chair like there were springs in that seat. And he said, mister, I tell you what, you don't want to live with my daughter, that's fine. You deposit her and my granddaughter here, unharmed, not a hair on their head. And if that changes, I'll kill you. said, so dad, blame dead. you won't stink. Now that's dead. <laughs> I've always laughed at that because there is no deader than dead. There's just dead. You're either dead or you're not. So Paul starts off there in verse, in chapter two that you're dead because of your trespasses, because of your sins. You, me, everyone, prior to faith in Jesus. Verse two and three, in which you previously walked according to the new, excuse me, according to the ways of this world according to the ruler who exercises authority over the lower heavens, or in the air, your translation may say. The spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. Three forces at work there in those verses, encouraging disobedience to God. There's three things working there to encourage trespasses and sins. The first one is the world, the world's system, the, the world's values and attitudes. John eight twenty three says, You you are from below, he told them, Jesus speaking, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. In John seventeen, four, Jesus says, I have given them your worries. He's praying and talking to the Father. I have given them your word. The world hated them because they are not of this world as I am not of this world. Because the world encourages you to disobey God, to have trespasses and sins. Before salvation, you are controlled by the values and attitudes of this world. Things like, you deserve it, go ahead. Get yours, I'm going to get mine. Get it while the getting's good, no matter what. Hey, the ends justify the means. Hey, everybody else is doing it. It's okay. It's not that big a deal. It's just, well, I'm doing better than so-and-so, so so it's okay that I... Those are the values and attitudes that the world propagates as as okay. Not even okay, but, but, but good. The second thing is Satan, if you look in that verse. Satan, according to the ruler who exercises authority over the lower heavens, the spirit now working in the disobedient. Satan is at work trying to get you to disobey God. Good news is Satan is not omnipresent. He is not omnipresent. He is not everywhere. He is limited physically in that fact. But he is working. His demonic associations are working. And he is influencing this world. And he influences this world... And everything and everyone with his lies. He is the father of lies. Starting with when he was talking to Eve. Oh, surely you won't die. Surely you won't die. That's not really what God meant. His first lie. And he's continued to perpetuate lies ever since. And the third thing. Working to get you and me and everyone. And especially unbelievers. Prior to salvation. To commit trespasses and sins against God. Is the flesh. You see there. Uh, in the verses, in verse 2 and 3, it talks about the flesh. Now, not, not our body literally. Our body's not literally causing us to, to, to sin, but it's our sinful nature. Our sinful nature. See, we aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We have a sinful nature from the get-go. Verse 3, we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. Literally translated there, we were were living to please the desires of our body and the wishes of our mind. And if that doesn't describe the world, I don't know what does. If that doesn't describe you and me from time to time, I don't know what does. But it certainly describes the way the world is, living to fulfill what our body wants and what our mind can dream up. Hey, you feel it, do it. Smoke it, drink it, eat it, touch it. Have her, have him. It doesn't matter. Whatever you feel, just give in to your fleshly desires and the whims of your mind. Whatever you can dream up. This isn't to say that unbelievers can't do good things. Of course, unbelievers can do good things. I've known some atheists that were some of the, most, some of the nicest people I've ever met. Some of the most cordial people I've ever met, some of the most considerate people I've ever met. Just because you're an unbeliever doesn't mean you can't do good things. And when we perpetuate that lie, we are doing harm, I think, because that is not true. Following God doesn't automatically make you some kind of moral person. That's, that's not the way that it works. Coming to this church doesn't make us moral, doesn't make us good. None of that. So, of course, you can do good things even if you're an unbeliever. It means, though, by, by our very nature... Prior to faith, we cannot do God's good works. By our very nature, prior to faith in Jesus, we cannot do God's good works, and we cannot merit salvation. We cannot meet God's standard of holiness. That's what it means. We can't do those things, regardless. We can do nice things. We can't do God's good works. And therefore, because of our very sinful nature, we cannot merit salvation. So the summary that he gives us there in those first three verses, the summary... The end result of our sinful state prior to faith in Jesus. We are doomed children of wrath. We are to be, should be, and deserve to be punished by God. There is absolutely no doubt we deserve death, wrath, punishment, separation. That's the first three verses. But fear not, believer. Fear not, Christian. Fear not, follower of Jesus. Fear not ye whose faith is in the one and only Son of God. Here comes those two beautiful, beautiful words, but God. Everything changes with those two words, but God. You were doomed, but God. You deserve wrath, but God. You could not live up to God's holiness, but God. No matter how hard you try, you are a rotten sinner deserving death, but God, but God. Verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us. The unbeliever is separated and spiritually dead, but God's love can still reach them. Just like it reached you or me or whoever else has placed their faith in Jesus. He's rich in mercy, and because of His great love, things change. Verses 5 and 6. Made us alive with the Messiah, even though we were dead in our trespasses. Think about that the next time you don't want to forgive somebody. God made us alive with the Messiah, even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace. There's that wonderful word. Verse 6. Together with Christ Jesus, He also raised us up and seated us in the heavens. Now, as a, as a faithful believer, a follower of Jesus, now, because of but God, notice the contrasting outcomes in verses 4 through 6 compared to the verses 1 through 3. We were dead, but God made us alive. We were enslaved to sin, had no choice, but God enthroned us with Jesus, seated us with Jesus. We were objects of God's wrath, but God made us objects of His grace. We were disobedient children, but God now makes us to fellowship with Jesus and part of His family. We were under Satan's reign and rule, but God made us unified with Christ. You, Christian, you, Jesus follower, you, child of God, you were hopeless. <laughs> you were dead. You were following self and Satan. You were destined for wrath. But God, in His infinite mercy and love, gave you hope. He resurrected you to Him, to follow Him, and to be an object of His infinite, eternal grace. Yes, He goes on here in verse 7 to explain why He did this for us. Why? So he says, so that. Those first two words of verse 7. So that. That's Two great words also. So that. God did all of this for us so that. Verse 7. So that in the coming ages, he might display the immeasurable, great word, immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. In the coming eternal age, he will display, he will show off, he will demonstrate, he will utterly flaunt his unmeasurable grace in the coming eternal age. In heaven. To put it in Brother Tony Evans' words, quote, you haven't seen anything yet. Eternity with God will be nonstop, never-ending, blow-your-mind experiences. In verse 5, Paul has already stated that you are saved by grace. You are saved by grace. He's already said that in verse 5. And I think Paul knew by the Holy Spirit's guidance That by the end of verse 7, we would already be suffering from what I call PCS. Puffy chest syndrome. Right? I mean, you read those verses and it's like, (laughs) yeah, baby. I'm the object of God's immeasurable grace. Forever. And ever. And ever. Right? But it's... He reminds us in verses 8 and 9 that it's but God. It's not but Daniel. It's not but Scott. It's not but Tommy. It's not but Tony. It's not but Doug. It's not but me. It's but God. See, he reminds us of that again in verse 8 because we are so quick to take the focus off of God. Verses 8 there. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. There should never be a boastful Christian boasting about himself or anything he or she has done. The only thing we should ever boast in is our weakness because it displays God's strength, and this fly is driving me nuts. Anybody else see that thing? I'm fixing to to get it. Golly! All right. So, we're not saved by anything we have done. And it's so easy to think that. It's so easy to make it about us. It's so easy to think that you have done something to deserve God's grace, and you haven't, and I haven't. Everything about your life is a gift from God. Everything. Everything. The, the fact that you were born here. In America, where you can come to church, everything is a gift from God. It is all by His grace. Every breath that you take. The fact that God even lets us live is a gift of His grace. If you really stop and think about it, if you really were just self-aware and really looked in the mirror and really thought about how wretched and awful and wicked and evil you can be and I can be, the fact that God still loved us enough to send Jesus to take our payment on the cross. It's unbelievable that God would love us like that. That's really, that's the words we use to describe God's love. God is love, but that's related to us in his mercy and his grace. That's how he displays his love to us, how he expects us to display his love to each other as well. But until eternity's age of endless grace show off, there is another purpose for our being a new creation. Until until we get to eternity and God's endless, immeasurable grace is forever shown off, forever and ever, there is a purpose for our being a new creation. As a new being, being made alive by and with Christ, there is a purpose for us, and it is in verse 10. For we are His creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God... Prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. A good work is defined as divinely prescribed action that benefits others in such a way that God is glorified. And that's why prior to salvation you can't do good works. Because it's not just a good thing, it's something that is good for others that glorifies God. And in our sinful nature, we cannot glorify God. God, because he will not be, cannot be, is not ever going to be associated with sin. If you as a follower of Jesus are feeling purposeless, or meaningless, or even miserable, if you are feeling that way as a follower of Jesus, maybe, just maybe, you need to get around to completing the good works that God crafted you to accomplish for him. God crafted you to accomplish those good works the good word or excuse me the greek word there for uh some translations say workmanship the hcsb that i'm using here says creation so it uses a different words for it. that word workmanship or creation in the greek is poema where we get the word poem the english word poem comes from that greek word used there for our creation poem beautiful you are you are a crafted poem of god created to do good things that brings the author of the poem glory Now if that ain't something worth living for I don't, I don't know what it is i don't i haven't found anything else better than that and i've tried several things matthew five fifteen and 16 says this is jesus speaking no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all those who are in the house In the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. The question is, are you doing good works so you can puff out your chest? Or are you doing good works to bring glory to God? That is the difference. Getting motivated by the fact that God's grace is not just unmerited. I hadn't thought about that until this week. God's grace is not just unmerited. We say that. It's it's God's unmerited favor, and that's true, but it goes even further than that. It's not just unmerited. It's de-earned. It's not that you you didn't earn God's grace. You did things too actively where God shouldn't have given you his grace. We de-earned his grace. We're not neutral in this. We did things that God shouldn't give us his grace at all. We have actively fought against his grace. You actually did things completely against God's ways. You did, I did. All people have. But hallelujah, praise the Lord. Sin is now your choice. I've said this before. Dusty said this before. You've heard that said before. But we don't think about it enough, I don't think. I mean, we we love blaming our sin on our OSN. I've heard that once, I've heard it a thousand times. Our old sin nature. You know, it's just my old sin nature. I'm just a sinful person. No, you're not. You are, but you do it now as a follower of Jesus by choice. Prior to faith, you're right. You had no choice. Scripture says you are enslaved to sin because you are a sinner. I am enslaved to sin prior to faith in Jesus because I am a sinner. When given the choice, I will choose me over God every time Because it's not even really a choice. It's just who I am and who you are and who every human being is. Excuse me. But after faith, after you have received his rich mercy and his unmerited grace, his de-earned grace, your sin is a choice every single time. Influenced by your sinful nature influenced by Satan, influenced by the world, but understand you're doing it simply because you want to, period. And that makes me uncomfortable with myself. And it, and it motivates me to want to do what God has put me on this earth to do. Every day, however insignificant it seems to me. Sometimes, sometimes picking somebody up on the side of the road... Because you've had some encounter with them and you know who they are, and you, that little that little tiny small voice goes, yeah, I really want you to turn around and pick that guy up, pick them up. You pick them up and, and you think it was nothing, besides thirty minutes of your time, and then a year later, they show up and ask you for prayer, because they're devastated. and Something devastatingly bad is happening in their life, and you're like, wow, wow, I almost said no. I was so busy. I had so much to do, I almost said no. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you that you did not let me mess that one up. We should be motivated, motivated beyond anything human to do the good works God has set aside for us. But you have a choice. You have a choice in your sin, whether it's a sin or not. And you have a choice in your good works, whether to do it or not. But understand that God crafted you as a poem to accomplish things that bring Him glory. That's why you're still here. If you are a follower of Jesus, the only reason that you have not already gone on to glory an eternity of experiencing God's un- immeasurable grace forever and ever is because He still has good works for you to do here. He still has things for you to do here for others that bring Him glory. But if you haven't come to a point of submitting to God's grace in Jesus as Savior and as Lord, if you haven't submitted to His saving work on the cross as your payment for sin, well, then you're still in verses 1 through 3. That's a scary place to be. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Dead in your sins and your trespasses. Deserving the wrath of God, just like me just like many other people in this room and many other people listening here this morning. We were dead too. And we did nothing. Nothing to deserve what God gave us. Nothing. And you can do nothing to deserve what God wants to give you. But like any other gift, the only thing you can do is accept it. Submit to it. Die to yourself and be resurrected to him. If you haven't ever come to the point of submitting to God and Jesus, then you are in verses 1 through 3. That's a terrible place that you haven't gotten to but God. And that's the best place to be. Why would we want to live anywhere else besides in verses 4 through 10 after that? right? But God, then these, that's where I want to live. I don't want to live prior to that. I want to live after that. But God, put me there. Make my life there. Lord, keep me there. Lord, don't let me get distracted from being there. Keep me focused on what you want me to do. But if, if you've never submitted to him, if you've never placed your faith, your trust in action, in what Jesus did on the cross, that he took God's wrath for you, then you are in verses 1 through 3. And wrath is coming. And I know that's n- nobody likes to talk about that. Nobody likes to talk about Wrath and God being angry, and hell, and heaven. We like to talk about heaven. We like to talk about hell. But Jesus talked about it a lot. Not to scare you. I don't don't think you can scare someone into faith. I think if you're scared into faith, then it's probably a wobbly faith to begin with. You shouldn't be scared into faith, but you should be understanding of the reality of your choices. You should be motivated by God's grace. Not by God's wrath. We should be motivated by God's grace to accept Jesus. We should be motivated by God's grace to live for Jesus once we have accepted that grace. And that's my good news for you today. Right? My granddad lays in a hospital bed, but God will keep his soul forever. I don't know if he'll heal him, I hope he does. I'm not praying for that. Not ultimately. I'm praying for what God knows is best. I've already been in times in in the last three years where where I've asked God, God, just go ahead and take him. Go ahead and take him. He's suffering. He doesn't want to be here anymore. Just go ahead and take him. And then there's been other times where I've said, God, thank you that he's still here. In tears, right? So I don't know. I've come to the point where I don't know whether he should be here anymore or not. It took me a while to get there. Now I'm just praying, God, whatever's best. If he's still supposed to be here, great. If he's not, I'm going to bawl my eyes out. But I know it's what's best. But I'll see him in eternity. Right? There's there's too much month at the end of the money. But God is still in control. Coronavirus is ravaging everything. But God is going to take away all pain and suffering one day. Just go down the list. Think of anything you can think of and then see what God does with that. But God, you're a filthy, rotten sinner, (laughs) but God loves you anyway, and me too. But God can change everything, everything about your life. And I pray that there's not anyone listening in here or on there today that has never accepted that truth and is not living in verses 4 through 10. After, but God. It's the best place to be, I promise you that. Uh, and after I pray, if you haven't and you want to talk about it, I would love to talk to you about it. Doesn't mean that life's going to be great, it means eternity is going to be unbelievable, immeasurable grace of God forever and ever. He is going to show off <laughs> who He is forever. That's what it means. And it will make life bearable. That, I can can give you that. It will make life bearable. God, thank you for today. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for challenging me personally this week uh, and just how much you did for us, God. How far and separated and dead we were. We as in anyone that has placed their faith in you, God. How dead we were without you, how much we didn't deserve you, and how much you love us enough to make us be with you forever anyway, God. We thank you this morning for your grace and for your mercy and that you displayed that through Jesus in a way that is truly hard to fathom, God. It's truly hard to fathom. We thank you that you are sovereign in control of it all and that your will will be accomplished one way or the other. God, we just pray that we're on the right side of that wheel and the good works that we carry out in your name and that it brings you glory and you alone and that those that do not know you, God, will see the light shined for your glory and will be drawn to you forever. And We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.